Hello, fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. In this episode, we are talking to Brad Cassing, who joined us a few episodes ago talking about his involvement in dog-powered sports. And today he's going to share some insight into how to choose a bike for the sport of bike drawing and how to maintain it. Thank you, Brad, for joining us again. Yes, hello. So talk to us a little bit about your experience with bikes, because of course you have some experience in dog-powered sports with racing, but you also have some experience uh, working with bikes. That's correct? Yeah, so my, my experience um, in, uh, in bike drawing um, all starts with, yeah, with the bike side of things. Um, and so I got into mountain bike racing uh, back in, in high school. And uh, this would have been in the, the late, uh, late 90s. Got into, into bike racing, had no idea what I was doing, but it was uh, a lot of fun. Got my, uh, my first job in high school working in a, uh, in a bicycle shop. And since then, I've always tried to at least keep my, uh, my foot in the door in working in bike shops uh, part time. It's just something that I, I love. I love the, the culture of, of working on bikes. I love keeping up on the, on the new technology and just seeing how things have, have changed over time. It's been in the last uh, few years that I've, I've gotten into the, the bike tour side of things. So as people are looking to get started in the sport of bike drawing, there's obviously a lot of questions that come to mind as they start looking at equipment for the dog and, of course, the bike for themselves. And the hard reality of it is, is that all bikes are very different. And there's so many little details that go into choosing which bike is going to be best suited for each dog and rider. So we're going to go over some of the different components of bikes and how you can start to make some decisions on what's going to work for you. And of course, Brad, I have to start by asking the question that we see everybody ask is, can they just use the old bike that's sitting in their closet as they get started? Um, yeah, so if, if somebody's wanting to get into bike touring, you haven't done bike touring yet at all, don't go buy a new bike. If, you, if you've got a bike in your garage that, uh, you know, tires will hold air and uh, it's safe to ride, try bike touring out first with it. You know, again, as we discussed in the previous episode, a lot of dogs, it's just not their thing. Don't, don't overcommit to anything before you know that this is what your dog wants to do. But you know, as far as using uh, using the old bike, uh, you know, using your old bike from college or your parents' bike um, or the bike you know that you've just been you know sitting around for for a decade, um, there have been a lot a lot of big changes in in bicycles um, over time. New bikes are a lot different. You know, side by side they might look very similar, but uh, there's a lot of new technology, hidden technology in bikes. Uh, that makes them a lot safer, a lot easier to, to handle, um, and a, a lot more durable. So using the bike in our closet might be a good way to get started, make sure we're comfortable on our bike, building our human mechanics, and then making sure our dog enjoys it. But it sounds like we probably will quickly outgrow that bike that's sitting in the closet. Ab absolutely. The, the new bikes have, um, you know, even just in the last five years, there's been a huge shift uh, where new bikes um, have a very different geometry than old bikes. Newer bikes have, for example, a, a fork that has a more relaxed angle to it. One way I like to think about this is the difference between a, you know, a motorcycle chopper uh, where you know, the, the front wheel is way out in front of the, uh, the motorcycle, right? You're going to see those guys cruising at highway speeds, you know, a, a really relaxed head tube on a bike. Uh, is going to give you that high-speed, smooth stability, which really works great for uh, for bike joring. It you know once you get up to speed with a dog, you know the the newer mountain bikes um, are going to be a lot more stable. If your dog is jerking a bit side to side, you've definitely got a much better hold over them. I don't think people should go out and start on bikes um, like that right away either. Though, if you're not already comfortable, you know with with some riding. Um, the newest, latest, and greatest bike is not going to do you any good. Downside for bikes is they're actually pretty difficult to control at very low speeds. Um, and so they, they're not 
very well suited for uh, for new riders. So again, if you've already got a bike sitting around, spend some time getting you know getting back into it yourself before before jumping onto uh, onto the newest uh, thing out there. Yeah. And when selecting your new ride, there's obviously a lot of different components that we look at too that put the bike together. And one of them is the big question of how much suspension do I need? Do I need a rigid bike with no suspension? Do we want a hardtail that just has front suspension? Or do we go all the way and get full suspension? Yeah. And that, that is one of the biggest questions that so many people just want a quick answer for. Uh, and and it's, it's a really hard thing to, to answer. You know, you'll see a lot of uh, a lot of you know really pro racers uh, in bike touring. They'll have one of each. You know, e even the people that are you know the most experienced with this can't always make that decision for for themselves. Um, now, there are definitely times that we can exclude some of these things. If you are if you're going to be riding on you know traditional mountain bike trails or or rough roads. A fully rigid bike, you know, where there's no suspension in the front, no suspension in the rear, uh, is not going to be the right choice. Um, it's going to just shake you around. Um, and you're, you know, if you're if you're riding on rougher trails and you don't have suspension on the front, you're not going to have good control over the bike. And so rigid is really only appropriate for, you know, if you're riding on very, very smooth trails or if you are racing at an elite level where every, you know, every ounce of weight you can save off your bike counts and where you want your bike to be as stiff and as rigid as possible. So rigid bikes are really not going to be the choice for people who are getting into this because you're going to want something that's comfortable and you're going to want something that's, that's good, to, good to control. So the question really then comes to you know, just a front suspension, which is what we call a hard tail. Tail of the bike is hard. There's no suspension there. Or, a, yeah, or the full suspension. Now, full suspension is fantastic. I, I will swear all day that full suspension bikes are, are the best non-bike you should go for. The downsides of full suspension bikes are that to make a full suspension bike work right, you've got to throw a lot of money at it. Full suspension bikes have a really difficult job. And that is if you're pushing down on the pedals, you, your bike is wanting to squish down. You know, this goes back to, you know, to Newtonian physics, you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. If you have a, you know, a cheap or a really old full suspension bike, that suspension cannot tell the difference between you pushing down on the pedals and the ground pushing up on the back wheel. So low end or older full suspension bikes are sloppy uh, is the best way to describe it. A lot of your energy of pedaling just goes into into that rear suspension. Uh, it goes into the heating up the spring or the air chamber um, and it's wasted energy. It might be a little more comfortable, but you're going to be working a lot harder. Really, I would say, you know, the clear choice for 90% of people who are just getting into this that aren't already coming with uh, with mountain bike experience is going to be with a hardtail bike, something that's got decent suspension up front and no suspension in the back. If you really get into these sports, you're gonna outgrow it. You're gonna want something with that full suspension later, but it's complicated. The, the full suspension is really complicated and I would, I would really steer new riders away from full suspension. Yeah. And along with, you know, when we're talking about the comfort of a ride, which obviously that suspension is going to give us a little bit more give, so to speak, as we're going over roots, rocks, we also then need to talk about tires because all tires are not the same. <laughs> and obviously different diameters of tires and different widths of tires are going to be better suited depending on what types of trails our listeners are looking to ride on. Can you give us a brief overview about how to choose tire diameter and the difference that you're going to feel with a bigger tire? Yeah. So for, for tire di diameter, um, you know, the, the overall height of the tire, it usually comes down to about three choices, right? You've got the 26 inch, which has been the traditional size, you know, back to the, you know, the 1920s, uh, 29 inch. Um, and this really kind of came about uh, and gained popularity. It was probably about 2005. You saw the first companies kind of making commitments to, to large scale production of, of the 29 inch bike. Um, and then in between, you've got something called the 650B 
commonly called the 27.5. Now, the bigger tires are better for efficiency, right? A, a taller tire um, is going to hit obstacles at a, at a lower angle. Um, you know, again, imagine trying to push a, a shopping cart off-road, right? If, uh, if the wheel's too small, uh, you're just going to get hung up on, on rocks. Mm -hmm. um, so the bigger the tire, the more easily it rolls over, um, over terrain. Um, the downside of going too big is that, again, uh, when you're trying to navigate, you know, tight turns and technical trails, uh, the bike can feel very sluggish. It can fight you. And it can be more difficult for, for new riders to get used to that. Uh, with 29-inch bikes, you know, you're also limited on how small you can make the bike. So very small riders, you know, going to have a hard time finding a 29-inch bike that fits them well. That said, my wife is, uh, is four foot eight, and she rides a 29-inch bike. So, um, so don't think that because you're short, you can't ride a 29-inch bike. It just might be a little bit more difficult to find the fit. The other big disadvantage of 29-inch bikes is the flex. Um, if you buy an inexpensive 29-inch bike, like you would at, you might find at a, a department store or Walmart, those 29-inch bikes are should very much be avoided. As your as your wheel size goes up, you've got more torque on the axles when you're when you're riding, um, and then the not only do the spokes have to support that, but so too does the frame. And I've seen you know as a shop mechanic, I've seen some 29-inch bikes that are just horrifically flexy. The, you stand on a pedal of the bike and the whole bike just twists under you. And it's not gonna break. This isn't, this isn't where you're at risk of, of snapping a frame, which is actually pretty uncommon. But if you, if you pick a bike that is too flexible um, and you're riding off road, you can actually store a lot of energy in the frame. Um, and so if you're going around a turn and the bike is flexing under you with some of these low end 29 inch bikes and you've got all this stored energy in the frame, all it takes is that wheel to start slipping, and it's just going to try and expend all of that energy. Bikes that are too flexible, and this is something you run into as well with cheap full suspension bikes, is that you can store a lot of lateral energy in the frame. And this can lead to really unpredictable and dangerous handling, where the bike might just suddenly jump out of track. Um, and you'll see riders that, you know, they thought they were handling the bike well, things were going well, and suddenly they're, they've lost control. Um, and so this is a risk of, of getting a, a really inexpensive bike that's a 29-inch bike. So again, you know, I would say that uh, for, for new riders, the, the clear choice is often in the middle. It's the, the 27.5 or 650B size. Whether you're buying you know, uh, the best thing you can afford at a department store or you're getting an entry-level one at an actual bike shop, that's probably the best spot to start for, for new riders. Because again, to do it right, you've got to spend a lot of money. Um, and we run into the same problems we ran into with the, uh, the full suspension bikes. As far as 26 inch, 26 inch bikes are kind of obsolete now. Uh, the technology is advanced that nobody's really building 26 inch bikes except for the really cheap ones now. So again, I would say for 90% of, of new riders, the 27.5 or 650B, again, just different names for the same tire size is the way to go again. Yeah, and when we are looking at uh, tires, we also have to consider what types of trails we're going to be riding on because that's going to have a big impact into the tire width that we're choosing. Some people are, you know, have access to snow for most of the year. Some people are riding on the beach and obviously different tire widths are going to handle the trails differently. So can you give us a brief overview on different widths of tires and which tires would suit better for the snow and sand versus our general trail? Yeah, so I, I have, uh, my, my race bike has fairly narrow tires on it. They're called, they're considered 2.1s, um, which is the width of the tire. Um, it's a, probably the most common tire size out there. Um, when you think of a traditional bike, uh, mountain bike, you're probably imagining tires that are 2.1 inches wide. A lot of newer higher end bikes go up to about 2.3. Um, it's gonna give you a little bit softer ride. It doesn't sound like much of a difference, but the difference between 2.1 and 2.3 is actually pretty significant. It's almost double the volume and how they're set up on bikes. And so for most, uh, you know, if somebody's looking for, for you know, uh, a, a do-it-all kind of bike, you know, that's what you're going to find. Something in the 2.1 to 2.3 inch size. And then from there, there's a pretty big jump. Um, it goes from that 2.1 to 2.3 range uh, up to the 4 inch to 5 inch size. Uh, and this is the fat tire bike. 
Uh, and I have seen so many really heated discussions online about which bike you should bike your with. You know, some people are saying, you know, traditional tire size is the way to go. Other people are arguing um, that, yeah, you've got to go with the biggest tire you possibly can so you can have as much control over the bike. The, the answer is, well, if money is an option, you need, you need both. So the, the fat bikes, I'll start with those because those are what people are most, you know, so, so curious about. They look really cool. The bikes are huge. They're like the monster trucks of bikes. <laughs> um, they are absolutely fantastic for sand. They're great on packed snow. Uh, don't think that you can just uh, head out and, uh, and ride on, uh, on fresh snow and you're just going to float on top. You won't. They do okay if the snow has been packed down by snowmobiles or grooming equipment. You might be able to ride in a couple inches of snow. You know, a lot of people get disappointed because they think it's just a go anywhere on the snow bike, and it, and it isn't. It's not a um, sled. <laughs> it's not a sled. It's not a sled, exactly. Where they really ex excel, though, is on uh, dry sand. So if you're on uh, in areas where you've got just dry, loose, uh, dusty sand, uh, they do a great job floating on top. Again, it's not perfect. You're still gonna, it's still gonna feel like you're riding through sand. They're, they're not the magic bike that makes sand riding uh, easy, right? You're not gonna be riding over sand dunes as if you're riding on pavement. But they, they do a lot better at that. Personally, the reason we, uh, we use fat bikes a lot, if I look at my window here, I can actually look at a volcano that's three miles away. We live in the volcanic field of Sunset Crater. Um, and this thing erupted about 700 years ago. And when it did, it covered the whole area in cinders. So little pea-sized to sand-sized rock. Um, and so the ground here is very, very soft. If we try and ride in regular bikes, we just sink in. It's you know very similar to sand. So again, if you're on very soft terrain, fat bike is, is absolutely the way to go. I will say, though, it is exhausting to ride. Um, you're going to be spending a lot of energy pedaling on a fat bike um, in any situation. So there's some situations where only a fat bike, bike works, but a fat bike is always, always going to feel like you're riding a bike with giant tires. So again, this is, this is a great choice for people who are training on unimproved uh, trails, right? Maybe you've got a, a dirt road by yourself that's poorly maintained. Um, it's loose. There's cobbly, you know, that's the, that's the right choice for every other kind of riding. If you're on, you know, wet sand, uh, like on the on the shorelines, uh, if you're on mountain bike trails, you're going to want a traditional mountain bike. Fat bikes also feel kind of awkward. And if you're not if you're not already coming in from the side of having some mountain bike experience, uh, you're probably going to lose control on it because they feel weird. And so, again, just like some of the previous ones, I'm going to say that the best way to go is just stick with the traditional mountain bike size. Uh, the 2.1 to 2.3 inch tire width. Uh, if you're finding that you're wanting to go out in the snow um, and you're wanting to, to ride on unimproved trails, then look at getting a fat bike, um, but it's not gonna be a great choice uh, for, for most people. So again, go with the, the narrower tires. Now, of course, when a lot of people are getting started with bike drawing and uh, they think about hooking up their large and strong dog out in front of them and they think, my goodness, I need to be able to brake and stop. So, of course, when talking about bikes, we've got to talk about brakes, too, and have the discussion of do we get disc brakes or do we go with frame or rim brakes? Yeah, and um, the, the brake that's even better than those um, is verbal commands. Um, so, you know, again, I always say, you know, work with verbal commands, um, first, uh, get, get your dog to at least back off. Even if you're there, you're not great at getting them to stop, get them to, you know, to back off first. Don't, you know, uh, if you've got two big dogs, just want to pull, doesn't matter how good your brakes are on your bike, they're going to drag the bike. So yeah, I get this question asked a lot with disc brakes versus, versus frame, frame brakes. Um, again, disc brakes are, are superior. Um, in design. The, the disc brakes are going to be a lot more powerful, but the biggest advantage isn't necessarily that they're more powerful. Even halfway decent frame brakes, if you really squeeze that brake lever, you're going to be able to lock up the wheel. So it's not like you're getting a, a greater maximum amount of braking out of disc brakes than frame brakes. Frame brakes can work just fine. The advantage of disc brakes is that it is much, much easier to brake. Uh, if you're trying to wrestle a dog that's pulling hard and you're working on trails, 
uh, and you've had cheap breaks in your bike, your arms are going to get fatigued fast. This happened when I was riding with somebody this summer. Um, she, she had a bike and she had disc brakes on there. After just a few minutes of braking, she had to just let go and bail because she couldn't hold the brake levers down enough and hold on to the bike. Her forearms were just cramping up. Disc brakes are going to give you a lot more control over the long term. They're also going to be a lot more predictable. Frame brakes can kind of give, 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 and then catch and then lock up. Um, and you never want brakes to lock up on a bike. If brakes have locked up on a bike, then steering doesn't do anything anymore. Um, and the bike is just going to be, be drugged. So disc brakes are, um, are absolutely the way, the way to go. If you buy any bike from a bike shop, you know, from the, the $300 range and, and up, you know, it's going to be with disc brakes and that's going to be, you know, and they're going to be good. You know, if you've got a, uh, a 10 year old bike, uh, that was expensive when it was new with, um, uh, with the, the rim brakes on there, don't expect that a new bike with disc brakes is necessarily going to outperform it. Bad disc brakes exist. There's a lot of bikes that if you go to a department store, you'll see that it has a disc brake on the front and rim brakes on the back. Now, typically, you do want better brakes on the front of the bike. This is because uh, your front wheel gives you about three times as much braking power as your rear wheel. And as a side note, everybody needs to practice mountain biking with just your front brake. Uh, it is far more important than your rear brake. Your rear brake feels nice and safe because if it skids, you don't crash, but you're never gonna be able to slow down enough just using the rear brake. The reason that these department store bikes have, a, have rim brakes in the front is because the br disc brake on the front just doesn't work. They have to put rim, cheap rim brakes in the back just so it meets the minimum standards for being safely sold in the United States. So really cheap disc brakes are, are awful. Um, and so you're better off buying a, you know, a bike with good frame brakes than cheap disc brakes. I know that a lot of entry level mountain bikes tend to come more often with certain components than others. And one of the things that we'll find along with the differences in brakes at our entry level is also going to be the material because different materials that the frames are made out of cost more. And just like with everything we've talked about today so far, there are certainly pros and cons to different types of material, some being more durable, some being lighter weight. What is your recommendation in terms of frame material for our entry level? Well, I'm, I'm going to say that mo you know most people that are going out and looking to get a um, um, a mountain bike for bike touring are going to end up with an aluminum bike. Carbon fiber is absolutely the the best out there, but you can buy a carbon fiber bike on Walmart.com for $400, and it's awful. It's terrible. Cheap carbon fiber is you know it, it's not better than anything. It's mm -hmm. it's terrible. You know, and steel bikes, you know, there's still a lot of people that buy like fully custom, you know, $4,000 steel bikes. And so steel isn't, isn't bad either, but you're also going to find that steel is really kind of either a high-end boutique thing, you know, uh, for people that want something custom and some unique properties, um, or it's going to be find, found on the really, really cheap bikes, which really aren't suited for the forces you're going to find in bike touring, or it's going to be found on um, older bikes that are obsolete now and again aren't going to give you the handling you need so there's nobody who's starting off getting you know into a bike touring bike should be getting a um a steel bike because there's really no steel bike out there that fits for bike touring uh so you can check that off your list easily and if you're looking to get a, a high-end bike like carbon fiber if you're just looking to get into bike touring it's too much bike the the high-end uh carbon fiber bikes are going to be very difficult to control for a new rider. Even more definitively than some of my other recommendations, um, I'm going to say that you know everybody looking to get their their you know a, a bike touring bike, unless you're looking for that you know for a high end race bike, you're going to be getting aluminum. That said, there are there's some really bad aluminum out there. Um, some of the department store aluminum bikes, um, as we mentioned before, can be very very flexible. Um, so a good test on a bike for flex is just, you know, locking, standing, standing next to the bike, locking up the brakes and just kind of with your foot pushing the pedal in towards the middle of the bike. You can feel with very little experience how flexible a frame is. Cheap aluminum bikes are going to flex more than anything else out there. Your, your bike's going to be aluminum, but that doesn't necessarily mean that any aluminum bike will do.
So another feature that I really like on my own personal bike, but a lot of newcomers who don't know about bikes actually haven't even heard of are dropper posts. I, uh, yeah. we have those on our bikes right now and they're fantastic. They make biking so much easier. So convince everybody here why they need a dropper post. Okay. Well, I, I had to convince myself on this. When the dropper posts first started coming out, maybe it was 2006, 2007, 2008 in there. That's where we first started seeing them. You know, we had customers coming to the shop, buying them and putting them on. I thought they were the dumbest thing. I was like, this is you're adding a lot of weight to your bike just to be able to raise and load the seat post. Like if you really need to drop the seat post, just get a quick release lever, you know, get off the bike, lower the seat, get back on it and keep riding. I didn't get it for a long time. They were heavy when they came out too. It was, it, it, I, it didn't make any sense to me why we do it for, for everyday riding. Now you find these things on every bike out there, even cross country, ultra light bikes, they're putting these things on there. And what's crazy is even on some road bikes, they're putting these on there. And essentially, dropper posts are, are, are seat posts, right, that support the seat on the bike. Uh, you push a button on the handlebars, and you can raise and lower the seat while you're riding. And this has a lot of, a lot of great advantages. The lower your center of gravity on the bike, the more control you have over the bike. So if you're going fast downhill, you know, just flying through, through turns, having the dropper post is going to give you a lot more control, a lot more stability. If you're a shorter person, this is also going to kind of help you feel comfortable on the bike over more technical terrain. So if you're going over bumpier stuff than you've gone before, you can lower the bike, get a little more confidence on there. And for bike drawing, dropper posts are fantastic because you can actually drop the uh, seat enough to have your feet flat on the ground while you're starting out, while your dogs are trying to pull the bike. The, the dropper post is fantastic. The reason you don't want to ride the, with the seat always all the way down is that it's really hard on your knees. When you're pedaling the bike, you never want your knees to flex at an angle of less than 90 degrees. That is terrible for the, uh, the tendons in your knees. So dropper posts are great if you're going downhill, if you're coasting, if you're starting off, um, but you never want to ride low. And so the dropper post lets you go between high up and riding and pedaling and low down for the, you know, the starts and the trickier stuff. Um, they're still pretty expensive, though, uh, I will say for this. And I don't think the cost is really justified on, um, on a lot of bikes under the $600 price range. Um, if your budget's below that, then I would say don't, don't, you know, don't worry about getting a dropper post from the start. Uh, again, as you're getting used to the riding, you can raise and lower the seat post. You just have to get off the bike. They are fantastic as you, if you can afford them. And these are something that you can always add on after the fact. It's not something, so if you're initial yes, budget is, for a bike. This is, this is one of like three upgrades that's actually worth it on a bike that, yeah, it can be added later. Um, and they, you know, you can get some uh, decent ones for, you know, less than $200 installed by a shop. So another discussion we have to have, of course, is are we using flat pedals? Are we going clipless? And this is another thing that tends to be an upgrade, especially to our entry-level bikes. A lot of them come with no pedals or, or flat pedals. Talk to us about some of the advantages or disadvantages between the two. Um, yeah, so flat pedals are the safe choice for, for anybody to, to make. Flat pedals, that's your traditional pedal that's been on bikes for 100 years. You know, you can ride with any shoes. They're, you know, they're, they're easy to get on and off um, for, you know, if you're learning to ride, it's, you know, you don't have to think about, you know, the, the complex motions of getting in and out of special pedals. Um, so everybody should start there, right? Until you feel that you are an experienced mountain biker, just ride flat pedals. The clipless pedals, and again, this is, the, the name confuses a lot of people. So I'll, 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 I'll explain that. So the very first pedals that came out were the flat pedals. Everyone's seen that. Then when, uh, when road bike racing became more popular, you know, in the er early Tour de France days, a type of pedal was invented called the clip pedal. And it had a, a metal cage, now plastic cage, that went up and over the top of your shoe that you would actually tighten down with a strap. So you'd start riding and you'd reach down and you'd actually strap your feet in. That sounds um, terrifying. It is terrifying, um, but it uh, it gave significant performance advantages because no longer are you just pushing down left and right. You can right. pull up on the pedal, you can push forward, you can pull back. 
Um, and so you could put down more power, you could spread your pedaling between more muscles, um, and it gave you a performance gain. Not a huge gain, but it was enough to, you know, if you're in a race, that that little bit of a it difference. Matters. Um, yeah, ma matters. Yeah. Um, that is never the, the right option for, for somebody who is bike joring. A true clip pedal is, is extremely dangerous. It should not, and I, I, doubt, I doubt you'd ever show up at a race where the race officials would let you ride in that. But clipless pedals, these are often called clip pedals, but they're not true clip pedals. These are where you have a special shoe and a special pedal that are designed to mate together. Just to confuse everybody, that process is called clipping in to your clipless <laughs> pedal. But these things, again, it gives you a, um, a special shoe that instead of the entire shoe being trapped and strapped into the pedal, it's just attached at a single point underneath. And all you do is you just twist your heel out a few degrees and there's a mechanism that flicks your shoe out. It, you, it becomes very intuitive. You can, you can learn to do this pretty easily. Once, once you've got the rest of, of mountain biking down well enough that you're not uh, terrified on every ride, I think it's a great upgrade to do, but nobody should start with these things. The other advantage of clipless pedals is that when you're on, on a lot of uh, more technical mountain bike trails, um, it does give you the option to kind of pick up the bike a little more. It's a little easier to jump up with the bike and pull it with you to get the rear wheel kind of in line with where you want. That's not really going to apply to the, the trails that most people are, um, are bike drawing on. Um, but the very last advantage, and this is for me the biggest reason that I ride clipless, is clipless pedals, the mechanism actually allows your heel to float a little bit side to side. If you're standing on a regular platform pedal, your toe is always going to be pointing the same direction. Um, clipless pedals have a little bit of free play built into them. As your knee moves up and down to the pedal stroke, your heel actually wants to drift in towards the bike, out away from the bike, in towards the bike, and out. If you allow that free play, that can actually relieve a lot of knee pain for, um, for some people. The downside is uh, you really only have one position on the pedals. So for other people, it can actually make knee pain worse. Um, so it's, it's a conversation to have with a bike shop. It's, if, if you want to try it, uh, absolutely go for it. But for starting off with, for the first year or two that you're really getting into the sports, uh, I'd say stay away from them for, for bike touring. And I think that's important too, what you just said about having a conversation with your local bike shop, because a lot of these guys, just like you, you used to work there, are super knowledgeable. So you can go in and talk pros and cons, look at price sheets and see which of these features fit in with your plan. Because depending on where you're starting off, a lot of these things can be changed with upgrades as you go along and get more comfortable with the sport and decide, hey, this really is something I want to do. You know, yes. what you're starting with does not always have to be, you know, your bike for life. And in fact, it usually won't be as your, you know, preferences in the sport and your skill level change. Yeah. I will say one last thing about these is don't buy the combination pedals. There are some pedals out there that are designed to be ridden with clipless uh, shoes or regular shoes. They're not good at either. Um, so yeah, commit to full platform or full clipless. And you can, you know, with, a, with some tools at home, you can change it out in a few minutes between rides as well. Yep. So we could always go with both if we want for yes. different reasons. Yes, exactly. So one of the things that's obviously really important as somebody is choosing a bike for them and their dog is deciding at what capacity they want to enjoy the sport and the areas in which they're going to do it. A lot of the features that you mentioned, for example, tire diameter and tire width, different selections are going to be better for different trails and different locations where somebody might enjoy the sport. So we might make a decision, decide, hey, this might not be the bike that is best suited for me anymore. I assume that along with our choices for bikes, there can be some consequences if we do select the wrong bike. Yeah, so the picking the wrong bike, biggest consequence is that you're picking a bike that, uh, that you can't handle well. Um, whether it's the, the wrong size bike, a bike that is just made too cheaply to really uh, safely ride the, the, the terrain, uh, the riding or handling the, the, the riding of um, a force of the dogs. If you can't control the bike very well and something goes wrong, which things can go wrong very, very fast when you've got a, um, a strong dog uh, strapped to your bike, the wrong bike can, can lead to you being hurt and can lead to your dog being hurt. 
And so this is something, you know, the, probably the most serious thing here is that if you get the wrong bike, you're putting yourself at danger. You're putting your dog at danger. The, the wrong bike is, is, you know, you're better off not riding than riding with, um, with the wrong bike. Yeah. And a lot of the choices, you know, like we discussed are options that can always be upgraded at a later date. Um, you know, as we're getting into new sports, we're obviously very eager to get started. I know a lot of my clients are very eager to get started in bike drawing, want to hook up and go, want to get the bike. But it's obviously a very big commitment financially to get a good bike. But the cool thing is, is that there's lots of different ways that people can get into bike drawing with a, a decent bike and save a little bit on the cost. So you talked a little bit about a new bike versus a used bike. And obviously, when we're looking at that, we want to look at the age of the bike, because an older bike from long, long ago, like you talked about, might not have the same geometry, might not be a good fit for the sport anymore. But we can buy used bikes that are more current options that other people have outgrown. I think buying used bikes is great. The used bikes, um, you know, again, especially if you, if you know that you're going to outgrow the bike at some point, it doesn't make a lot of sense to go out, a sense to go out and spend a lot of money on a, uh, on a really expensive bike. If you know that you're just going to need something more than that at, uh, at some point. So used bikes can be a great choice. I wouldn't go um, more than about 10 years old for a, for a used bike. Beyond that, you know, the high-end bikes are still, are still current and relevant. Um, but if you're buying a bike that was $5,000 15 years ago, it's going to be an awesome bike still. It's going to be lightweight. It's going to perform well. But if you need to replace the shock seals on that bike, um, suddenly you might be in for a $400 service on a bike that you just spent $300 on. Um, so going back too far, you know, to, to get a really high-end bike, it seems like a great deal financially can really, really surprise you. Um, yeah. And so again, I, I'd say going back to about, about 10 years um, can, be, can be pretty good uh, choice. And again, if you're looking for a, a race bike, you'll want to go new uh, because you want that newer geometry that's only been out for a few years. But it turns out that the, the race geometry from 10 years ago is actually really well in line with what a, a new rider geometry is today. Um, so yeah, buying a used bike is, uh, is a great way to go. The things to watch out for on buying a nicer used bike, and just to be aware of, uh, if you're buying a bike with hydraulic brakes, um, there's a good chance you're going to be putting a fair bit of money into, into maintaining those, which you do have to do on new bikes anyways. There's a lot of systems on, on uh, older hydraulic systems, especially when you go back like 10 years, uh, that you can't even buy parts for. So um, if you have a brake problem on a 10-year-old bike, you might have to buy entirely new brakes, which again, could be a couple hundred dollars right off the bat. Um, yeah. But if the bike has been really well kept, yeah, it's, it's a great way to go. But again, even, even a bike that's been sitting, um, the seals inside of those uh, brakes for the hydraulic brakes, they only have a, a limited life no matter what. So yeah. don't buy a bike as a fixer upper, never buy a bike as a fixer upper. Buy a bike that already works just fine. Because if you find one problem with it, when you're going to buy it, there's there's 10 times as many problems that you can't see as a as the buyer. Yeah, absolutely. Another people, another way that people can save money on buying some bikes is to go with something without a lot of the flash and fancy features, more of an entry-level mountain bike that's still good quality, and then add on or upgrade as they go along. So based on some of the uh, features of a bike that we've already talked about, like tires and disc brakes, dropper posts, pedals, what are some easy upgrades that if somebody got an entry-level bike and it didn't have the feature that they could add on as their budget allowed later on? Um, there's there's very few things that I, I would say are a worthwhile upgrade. A dropper post is one of them. For some people, you know, going with flipless pedals, if you kind of moved up to that level, is also a, a great way to go. But many upgrades on bikes are extremely, extremely expensive. Um, the end user um, can often pay six times as much for a part as the manufacturer did. So, I mean, I've, I've gone to, uh, you know, bicycle trade shows, you know, around the country, you know, like big, uh, you know, annual trade shows. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of the part suppliers and things like this. And, you know, uh, a particular fork on a bike might cost $200 for an end user to buy. 
but it might cost $25 for the manufacturer to buy. There oh really is a match of a difference when you start adding in all the, all the middlemen. Um, and so if a part of your bike breaks, it's often worth you know going a level up. Very rarely is it ever cost effective to, to upgrade it. A seat though, I would actually say more than anything else, a seat is the most important upgrade you can do for a bike. Um, go to a bike shop that actually has a variety of test seats to demo out and try and ride and find the seat that fits your butt. Everybody's butt's got a different fit um, and getting the right seat is really important. Uh, as a little tangent on that is for mountain biking, your butt should not hurt, right? Riding a bike should not hurt your butt. If, the bike, if, the, if your butt hurts and you've been riding for a little while, you've gotten a little bit used to it and it's still hurting, something is wrong. Um, so it might be the seat's not right, but more than anything else, it's a matter of, of adjustment. If the seat is too low, um, you're, you're going to be sitting on the seat um, and that will, that'll put pressure on, on your butt and it'll hurt, which again goes back to a dropper post. When you're riding, you want that seat up nice and, and high. So that is a, a, a fantastic upgrade. Um, you should not be sitting while you're mountain biking. The seat's purpose is really there to allow your legs uh, and your rear to hold the bike in line. But you should essentially be riding a mountain bike as if you're always standing up anyways. That's why you see like road bikes have really narrow seats. You know, these people are riding hundreds of miles in a day and you're like, how can that be comfortable? It's because they're not sitting on the seat. And so I see people doing things like adding gel covers to their bikes. Don't do that. Never buy a gel cover for your bike. That means something, something else is wrong. If yep. you're adding these big fluffy or, oh gosh, I've, I've, I've seen people spending money on like sheepskin, gel, air cushion, you know, the most ridiculous giant seats. And that seat might be comfortable to sit on, right? If you're just sitting there watching TV, it might be great for that. But if you've got a seat that's too big and with too much cushion, as you start riding that bike, you're going to be shaping the inside of your legs. Um, and waddling for days uh, anytime the clothing touches your skin. So a seat that is too big uh, is going to be painful. Get the seat that is just right for you and get padded shorts too. That's another yeah. great uh, upgrade. You know, there's, there's some things you can do on the bike, but get, get some padded shorts. That's the real reason that people ride in spandex. It's not because it, I mean, you do look very stylish, uh, but it's mainly <laughs> it, holds, it holds padding right up against your skin. Yeah, I'm finding that with, quote, upgrades that we would make to the bike, it's it's less of the big mechanical pieces and it's more of the small add-ons like the pedals, the seat, uh, and then all of the equipment for us, you know, gloves yeah. so that it's comfortable for your hands and the shorts or pants with padding in them to really give you the most comfort. And, and again, the seat is a great thing too because when you, when you move on to the next bike, just move your seat over with it. It's not something you have to leave with the old bike. Put the old seat back on that bike when you sell it and keep the seat that fits you just right. Yep. Um, yep. And that's the, the other thing with fit is uh, whenever you're buying a bike, don't get a bike that is a close fit. Get a bike that is the exact fit. And this, this is a big thing for people that are, for women that are shorter than 5'6 or taller than about five, eight department store bikes are not going to fit you. They come in one size, a women's medium. And if you're a tall woman or a short woman, that bike is going to be the wrong fit for you. It's going to be uncomfortable and you're not going to have good handling. Same with men's bikes. If you're a, uh, for men that are shorter than about five, seven or taller than five, nine, uh, maybe five, 10, a bike from a department store is not going to fit you. Um, you're either going to feel really cramped on it or you're going to feel really stretched out. And no upgrade you can do will ever fix that. Yep, that's good. That's really good advice. So a lot of people that are getting into this sport and are getting their first bike or maybe even their first bike that they've had since they were a kid. And so bike maintenance is often a very foreign concept for a lot of people. You know, we rely and build, rely on our local uh, bike shops and build good relationships with them for our annual maintenance. But there are some things that we should know how to do ourselves or be prepared to do. Let's say, for example, if we're going out of town with our bikes or going to a race. So what are some things bike maintenance wise that you would recommend that beginners learn how to do? Well, first of all, you, you talked about, you know, building a relationship with your shop and doing your annual maintenance as that's, you know, seems like an obvious thing. 
To a lot of people, it isn't. Um, and you know that you know I want to stress the importance of you know bikes are complex complex machines. Um, you know they and your your safety depends on them being set right. Um, you absolutely should do at least an annual maintenance on the bike, even if you're not riding it much. Things just kind of drift out of adjustment. And for new riders, I don't. I, I suggest don't really touch most of that stuff. The the gears, the brake adjustments, um, things like that. Um, you're, you know, especially like you know, truing the wheels and adjusting bearings. I see more people do mess those up than actually get them get them right. It doesn't mean that you can't learn to do that, uh, but focus on the riding before you focus on, um, you know, on on tweaking those things. Yeah. Um, that said, there are definitely some responsibilities that a rider has. Um, and the uh, the biggest one is checking the tire pressure. Um, you should check the tire pressure before every ride. And I know a lot of people are going to roll their eyes at me saying that. Well, I don't have to check my bike pressure after, you know, before every ride. Uh, yeah. Yes, you do. Um, because what, what happens is um, uh, bike tires lose pressure very quickly. Um, car tires have a high volume of air. Um, and they've got very thick rubber on them, right? Which means that they are not only losing air very quickly, but if they lose, you know, a few cubic inches of air, it doesn't really affect the pressure very much. Um, whereas on a bicycle, you actually have very low volume compared to the surface area. Um, and the, the tires are made to be as thin as possible uh, to keep them light and to keep them flexible. Um, and so bicycles, you know, some bicycles can lose um, over one PSI a day um, just sitting there, and that's normal. That doesn't necessarily mean something's wrong. There are there are some bike tires that will lose pressure like that, um, and so you need to check before every ride. In Arizona here, where everything that grows grows with thorns on it, um, you'd think that you know that would just be the most devastating thing for for bike tires, um, but it isn't. the The worst thing for bike tires is underinflation by the rider. In Arizona, right, the the state with more thorny plants than any other. Um, the number one cause of flat tires is low tire pressure. You ride over a bump and the, the tire squishes in and it pinches the tube inside of there because there's not enough pressure to hold the rim and tire apart. And it tears the tube. Um, these are often called snake bites because it actually cu cuts two little slits in the tire. So keeping the pressure up is important. And the other thing I, I tell people that they, you know, a lot of people don't believe uh, is that you cannot tell your tire pressure by squeezing the tire. Um, <laughs> you need to use a pressure gauge. Yes. Uh, I don't know how many times people come into the bike shop and I'm like, uh, sir, your pressure is is really low. And they squeeze the tire like, no, it's fine. And I'm like, you've got six PSI in your tire. You shouldn't be running any less than 30 on this bike. Once you've got about 10, 15 PSI in the tire, it's going to feel almost as hard as when you're up to... 40 PSI. Um, so use a pressure gauge. Don't, don't trust yourself. Use a pressure gauge. I've been touching bicycle tires for decades. I've done literally thousands of, uh, of flat tire fixes, 10,000, you know, tire inflations. I still use a gauge every time because even with my experience, I cannot tell what the pressure is. And I think it's important for everyone to know too that what your friend's tires might run at are not necessarily what yours are, depending on the diameter and width of your tire. You want to make sure that you are knowing what your tire pressure should be and filling it appropriately. Yes, and I and I, I'm not going to tell people what their tire pressure should be because that's so dependent on your tire size, your riding style, your weight, and the terrain you're on. There's there's so many things in this. Um, but if you wheel your bike into a bike shop and ask what your tire pressure should be, the, the shop mechanic can look at you, look at the bike, ask you a couple of questions, and they'll tell you what your pressure should be. Yeah. Um, and, and, the, and the pressure, getting the pressure just right for you is super important um, because if you've got too low of a pressure, not only do you run the risk of flats, but you also are wasting energy. Low pressure is going to slow you down, um, and it's not necessarily going to give you better handling pressure's low, the tire can again get floppy, flex, and slide out. Too high of pressure, and it's a it's a rough ride, you're bouncing down the trail, you're skipping um, over little obstacles in the turn, getting the pressure right is important. Um, but I've done this, I've been to races, and I will go around um, before the race, 
And I will just walk around to the pump and I'll just walk up to strangers and I'll be like, hey, can I check your tire pressure? Um, three quarters of racers, three quarters of racers at dry land racing events with, with dogs, right? These are people who have had experience enough to ride are riding at unsafe pressures. This is, you know, this is not something that is a, a, mis- a newbie mistake. This mm-hmm. is something that people just, they just overlook and they do it for years. Yeah. And ultimately, you could end up damaging your bike, damaging your tires, costing yourself well, and your dog injuries too. Yes, um, and and the rims too, right? Uh, if you if you if your rims smacking into the tire when it gets squished, um, you can crack your rim. And I mean, even a rear wheel, you're you're not spending less than a hundred dollars to get a rear wheel replaced on a bike uh, that could have been avoided by just checking your tire pressure. Yeah. Now, in regards to tires, I think this is a good time, too, to talk about tubeless tires. So before we kind of get into that, can you tell people or kind of explain what tubeless tires are and what we're talking about with maintenance for those? Yeah, tubeless tires are fantastic. Um, Tubeless tires came out, it was first about 2003 that we saw the first bikes with tubeless tires. Um, And the first tubeless tires were built like heavy tires. Uh, the idea is that you would just make a thicker tire that was less likely to get a flat. Um, and you know, there were some advantages, uh, to them. Um, and, uh, one advantage is that you don't have a tire and a tube rubbing against each other. So you, you, you get a more efficient ride by getting rid of the tube. Uh, it actually can make, I mean, over a race, uh, it can be several seconds. Um, of time saved just by going with a tubeless tire. So if you're being competitive, you absolutely want to run run tubeless. In the mid uh, 2000s, you know, a lot of people started realizing that you actually didn't need special tires to go tubeless. You could just do these kind of home conversions where you, you know, use an old inner tube for, um, you know, to, to airtight the rim, use any old tire, and then you just put some latex sealant inside of there. Um, and this didn't always work, but a lot of times it did work for people. Uh, the idea isn't that you use a special strong tire. It's that you use a tire that is very weak to thorns, right? You run over a thorn, it's going to go into the tire. The tip of that thorn goes into the tire, gets coated in latex. And when the thorn comes out, it plugs that hole back up with latex. Um, and so this not only made bikes lighter, that made bikes more efficient. Um, it essentially got rid of flat tires. I cannot remember the last time I got a flat tire. It has been years now, when I change out my, my sealant, um, mm-hmm. I will find dozens of thorns still in my tire. And I just kind of say, shrug it off. Like, ah, there's thorns in there. They'll, they'll heal up. It's fine. But you have to do maintenance on them. Um, the sealant in tires dries out. Uh, and it can dry out in as little as two months if you're in a really hot, dry climate. Uh, you might get six months out of the sealant in your tire. Um, so while it's a great uh, upgrade, it's a great, you know, a great thing to do, it is going to be an expensive or time-consuming thing to, to maintain. Uh, really, you should be doing, you know, for most people, going in there, taking the tires off the bike, cleaning it out, putting new sealant in about every three months. And that's a lot to ask um, for people who are just riding occasionally. So again, a great upgrade, but if you're kind of getting into riding, don't worry about it. Just, just stick with a regular tube. But don't get thick tubes either. Um, you don't need a heavy duty tube in your bike. Um, a thin tube with a little bit of sealant inside of that is just as good at preventing flat tires as, um, as a, as a tubeless tire would work. So something else that we will obviously, uh, need to do on a regular basis is keeping our bikes clean as this can impact the, the performance of the bike can cause premature you know, wear and tear on the bike and have an end result of needing more maintenance down the road. Do you wash your bike after every use? My, my recommendation is don't clean your bike. Um, it, it's only clean your bike if it, if it needs it. Um, I cringe when I see, I've, I've seen people like at the trailhead that will like bring water to like spray their bike down on their bike rack after the ride. And like, I just cringe because uh, water will speed up the corrosion on many things on the bike. Uh, bikes are made of a lot of different types of materials, carbon fiber, stainless steel, regular steel, um, aluminum, titanium. And when when you get non-like metals together, um, they, they corrode with each other. A uh, little bit of grease will stop that. Um, but if you're constantly washing your bike, um, you're displacing a lot of grease 
um, and your the the bike is or the water will speed up corrosion processes. So um, if you're riding somewhere that your bike is always you know it's always dry uh, like it mostly is here in Arizona, never wash your bike. I mean wipe it you know wipe down the frame with a with a rag. If things get really dirty, well you know at, at a certain point you might want to ride the bike. Uh, but you kind of reach a point where the bike's you know you've got as much dirt falling off your bike as is building back up on it. Um, and if that's not super messy, then just, just leave it. You know, the, there's also a lot of like chain oils that, uh, modern chain oils that are considered dry oils, um, that they'll actually self clean as you ride. Uh, you have to apply them more often. Um, but they keep things nice and clean. Now, none of this advice applies to you if you're living outside of Seattle. If, uh, if you're riding in the mud a lot and you're riding through water, uh, dry oil is just going to get, it's just, you know, the first time you cross a creek, it's gone. Um, and if your bike, if you get back to the trailhead and your bike is soaking wet and covered in mud, then yes, you should clean it right away. Get that mud off. The bike's already wet. You know, the, the trick now is getting the wetness off of it, right? Spray it down with a hose. That's fine. Uh, don't use a power washer, but get that mud off and then get it dried you know, as, as quickly as you can. So again, if your bike doesn't need to be washed, don't wash it. Uh, if it is wet and covered in mud, then, then you should wash it. But again, every time you get the bike wet, you are shortening its life a little bit. So one of the things that you mentioned was the difference uh, briefly between wet and dry lube for the chain. Is yes. lubing a chain something that you recommend that beginners get comfortable with? Or is this something yes. that you recommend they bring their bike to the shop and have done? No, especially if you're using a dry oil. Uh, dry oil only lasts for a couple of rides. Um, it is, it's very short-lived. The really dry oil, you might get 15, 20 miles out of it, and then you've got to reapply it again. Because uh, as dirt builds up, it peels that dry oil off. Again, it self-cleans. It's fantastic, but it doesn't last. And so really, you want to pick the driest oil you possibly can. Um, and you need to keep the, you know, keep the chain oil, you know, check it before, uh, every ride, um, make sure there's a little bit on there. Uh, it doesn't need much, but it needs a little bit. If your bike is ever sounding like, uh, you're ever hearing squeaking coming from the drivetrain, that means damage is being done. You know, every second you're riding with a squeaking chain, you're wearing the drivetrain out. Um, so yes, uh, oil should be applied pretty regularly, but it's going to depend on you on what type of oil you use. Uh, but your shop, you know, your local shop will tell you exactly what you need. Perfect. Now, are we relying on our local shop as we're preparing for a race as well? You know, being out of town when when my husband and I go on vacation or go to races, heading out of town, we generally tend to bring some tools with us. For beginners that are not as comfortable working on their bikes and doing maintenance, what would you say are the must-have items if they're leaving town with their bike? Yeah, well, before you leave town with your bike, take it into a bike shop and just ask for a safety check. I've never been to a bicycle shop that will charge you for a safety check. And what they'll do is they'll just do a little once over of the bike to make sure things are tight, make sure there's no, nothing's about to break. And uh, yeah, it, that'll cost almost nothing. What you should have is a pump, because again, you need to check your, your, your bike before every ride. Spare tubes, have spare tubes for your bike. Even if you have tubeless, you can carry spare tubes for, for fixing uh, fixing that. It's good to have multi-tools with you. Um, have a, um, a CO2 cartridge for inflating the tires um, while you're on the trail. Even if you don't know how to use these tools, having the tools with you, um, either you're going to get desperate enough while you're stranded to fix your bike to get home, um, or you'll just be sitting there and eventually somebody's going to come by and know how to fix your bike. Uh, but you've got to have the tools with you uh, to be able to, to make, the, make these things work. So yeah, a basic multi-tool, um, a CO2 inflator. Don't don't ride with a you know a race with a with a hand pump. Hand pumps don't really work. I mean, they'll they'll get your bike up the pressure, but you are going to be exhausted after ten minutes of pumping. Uh, whereas a CO2 cartridge, yeah, you spend a few dollars on a disposable cartridge, but your bike tire will be inflated within seconds. Um, and everyone should know how to change a tube um, on their bike. Um, practice. Take a tube out of your bike, put it back in. Take it out, put it back in. Uh, and watch some YouTube videos on it because there are some, it seems straightforward, but there are mistakes that everybody will make their first time. I feel like in our current day and age, there are so many wonderful blogs and YouTube channels out there that will help guide you through that process. And of course, if you're not super tech savvy, you can always walk into the store. 
mountain bike people are some of the nicest and friendliest people. And so anyone in store, if you ask how to do something or want some resources, they'll be able to help direct you towards more information so that you can learn how to do some of these things and get more com comfortable with working with your bike as time goes on. Oh, absolutely. And if you go into a shop where they don't want to help you with that, find a different shop. There, there are some shops like that. They are the minority. And uh, yeah, you, you can find a better shop uh, where people really will want to help you out with it. They're, they're not losing money by teaching you how to change your, by changing your, your tire by yourself. You know, they're, they're, that's helping you get more engaged in the sport. You'll, the more engaged you are, the more money you'll spend in the shop. So they, they are not afraid to, to help you out. As people are starting to select their bike, talk to local shops to pick out what might be the best bike for them, do you have any uh, last tips or pieces of advice for them? Um, yeah, again, go, go to multiple shops, talk to the people in the shops to, uh, you know, find somebody who's enthusiastic about helping you out. T tell them your bike joring. Right? They, even most mechanics have probably never heard of this. If they get excited about it, well, you found you found a good person to to work with. Um, so find find a you know a mechanic, a salesperson, a shop that uh, that is excited to help you. You will find it. There. That's that's what most mechanics are. I think that's great. Well, Brad, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all of your knowledge. I know that there are a lot of things that we can't give definitive answers on, and I know that that can be frustrating for some people, but you really did give a lot of insight into the different components of bikes and things that people need to be thinking about. And I think that that's very important because that is part of the sport, being able to have a piece of equipment that's safe and reliable. And that's just as important as picking out an appropriate harness for their dogs. So yes. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing some of this information for everybody. All right. Thank you. Do you feel ready to walk into a store and pick out your bike? We understand that it's complicated. So if you're not quite ready and you have some questions of your own, you can reach out to Brad through two of his Facebook groups, Bike Drawing Eastern USA and Bike Drawing Western USA. So, until next time, have fun chasing tails on the trails.